The following is a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine for a Reformed awakening. To learn more, call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org. On a dark and early May morning in 2016, a text message from a neighbor came to my cell phone at 5.15 a.m. What's going on at Hank's house? Why are police surrounding the house? But my phone was turned off and in another room, and I never got the message. Peaceful sleep sounds echoed from the children's rooms. Even the dogs were sleeping. My Bible was open with my notebook and coffee cup in arm's reach, and I started my devotions that morning as I have been doing for the past 20 years, and as Ken and Floyd Smith modeled for me, praying that the Lord would open my eyes to see wondrous things in His Word. Well, I typically intersperse prayer with Bible reading and note-taking, and in the morning, I pray in concentric circles. I start by confessing my sin, seeking deeper repentance, praying that the Lord would increase my love for Him. I long for the Lord to grow me in holiness, to give me courage to proclaim Christ in word and deed, and to live as a living epistle. I long for the Lord to make me a more loving wife and mother and friend. I then pray for my family, the church, my neighbors, my nation, foreign missionaries, mission fields, I thank the Lord that he is risen. I thank the Lord for the covenant of which I am a part. And with notebook open, I pray through names and situations. Well, that morning, my prayer time stopped at the category of neighbor. I was praying for my immediate neighbor, Hank. A typical morning, except for the cell phone that I had turned off, continued to receive text messages alerting me to the fact that something dreadfully, dangerously wrong was happening in the house across the street, the house of the man for whom I was praying. Our house and Hank's house share a dead end that opens up where two acres of woods start. And when Hank's moving van first backed down the driveway in 2014, he was a self-described recluse. He worked in his yard digging ditches for reasons no one knew. He played loud music. He occasionally received cell phone calls that got him seething mad and shouting obscenities. He owned a 100-pound pit bull named Tank. And Tank ran the streets without collar or tags. And every neighbor can recall how we all saw our life flash before our eyes the first time this dog came bounding around the corner and running at us in full throttle. Hank didn't cut his grass for three months. And by the time the city fined him for creating both a meadow and an eyesore, not one of the regular mowers that all the neighbors owned could tackle the job. So truth be told, Hank was not the neighbor we prayed for when Edie sold the house and moved her family to Wisconsin. But we trusted that Hank was the neighbor God planned for us. Good neighboring is at the heart of the gospel, I know. I've been on the other side of this one, remember? And so when Hank moved in, we walked across the street, ding dong, rang the doorbell, had the kids and dogs, little loaf of bread, note card with all of our contact information, and we welcomed Hank to the neighborhood. And he reciprocated by dismantling his doorbell. <laughs> we prayed for Hank. You know, when you don't know what else to do, that's what you do, right? We prayed for Hank and gossip started to spring up in our neighborhood about this man who just didn't fit in here. And then one day Tank ran away. One day turned to one night, one night to a week, and many neighbors expressed relief that that large gray pit bull 
was not running the streets anymore. But in the crisis of a lost dog, one who is also the closest friend of a lonely man, the inkling of our friendship began. We offered to help find Tank, and this time Hank received our open hand. We posted Tank's information on Nextdoor, a social media app that organizes communication in our neighborhood of 300 houses. And we enlisted other dog-loving neighbors to help and come to Hank's aid. My 10-year-old daughter walked across the street and told Mr. Hank that she cries herself to sleep praying for Tank's happy return. And when Tank was finally found safe and sound, we became fragile friends. Hank actually gave me his cell phone number and his email and said, Rosaria, don't abuse this. <laughs> so I tried not to. <laughs> we started to walk our dogs together. The first time we did this, Hank didn't have a leash, he had a clothesline. And eventually, we were eating meals together. They started at the picnic table in the front yard, and we slowly moved the table closer and closer inside the door. And eventually, we were even spending holidays at our table and sharing life. We learned that Hank was lonely, that he had severe clinical depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, social anxiety, that he had served time in the military, and even that he had lived as a homeless man before his mother bought him the house across the street. Hank loved the woods behind our houses as much as the children and I do. And as winter opened into spring, our households would keep a tally of what's going on and the kids would check with Mr. Hank because, well, he was home all the time, so he had a lot of time to watch the woods. We would count how many red-shouldered hawks calling American toads, migrating and returning robins, blue jays, woodpeckers, towhees, how many ambling box turtles we had that year. Hank helped us chop down dead trees in our woods, always checking to make sure there were no babies in them. In his garage, he always had the little knick-knack that I needed, a small flash knife for walking dogs at night, or a little hook that holds doggy bags to the leash. Hank was uneven. We believed his depression made him so. Sometimes he stayed secluded in his home for weeks on end. We'd text and call to no avail. And the only sign of life was that his garbage can would appear at the curb at the appointed night and time. And then Amy moved in a month prior to this event that I'm talking about here. Pink hair, twiggy, skinny. She wore the sunken eyes and the pock skin and the manic unpredictability of a drug addict. As neighbors were texting my inaccessible cell phone about commotion at Hank's house, I was sitting at my desk praying for my neighbors. And that's when I noticed it. Burly men ducking around the back of my house wearing orange shirts D-E-A, Drug Enforcement Agency. Serene morning darkness exploded with the unnatural intrusion of police lights. Yellow tape appeared everywhere, marking a crime scene. I left my Bible open to Psalm 42 and ran to Kent. I grabbed my phone and turned it on. Text messages bounced into life. What's going on at Hank's house? Is there really a meth lab across the street from you? The next thing I heard was pounding, and the police were at my door. Well, what does the conservative, Bible-believing Christian family who lives across the street from an active meth lab do in a crisis of this magnitude? How ought we to think about this? How ought we to live? Well, spoiler alert right now, Owning a pair of modest pajamas and wearing them is very helpful when the police are knocking at your door. At the, I'm just going to tell you, all those L.L. Bean coupons you get, you know, oh, they're frumpy. Let me just tell you, the frumpier, the better. So if you want to practice radical, ordinary hospitality, just write that down. Wear frumpy pajamas. It's your first line of defense. <clears throat> okay, back to the text. 
we could barrack ourselves in the house and remind ourselves and our children that evil company perverts. And like the good Pharisees that we're always poised to become, we could just thank God that we're not like those evil meth addicts. We could envelop our home in our own version of yellow crime scene tape, giving the message that we're better than this, that we make good choices, that we would never, ever fall into this mess. We could surround ourselves with fear. I mean, what if the meth lab had exploded? I'm in Durham, North Carolina. Our houses are pretty close together, apart from those woods that are in the back. The room closest to the meth lab was my daughter's bedroom. What if my child had been hurt or even killed? We could berate ourselves with criticism. How could we have allowed this unstable and dangerous man into our hearts and home? But of course, that's actually not what Jesus calls us to do. So as neighbors filed into our front yard, which had become a front row seating of unfolding drama and epic magnitude, also giving me enough time to change out of those frumpy pajamas and into something even a little more frumpy, because I am a homeschool mom and I take, that, I take that as a badge of honor. <laughs> Kent and I looked at each other and we opened the house. I scrambled eggs, put on a big pot of coffee, set out all the Bibles in the house, opened all the doors and invited everybody in. Who else but Bible-believing Christians can make sense, can make redemptive sense of tragedy? Who else can see hope in the promises of God when the real lived experiences look so dire? Who else knows that the sin that will undo me is my own, even when my neighbor's sin has crime scene written all over it? And where else but a Christian home should neighbors go to in times of unprecedented crisis? Where else is it safe to be vulnerable and lost and scared and helpless? You see, if we close the door and draw the shades, how really can we teach our children to apply biblical faith to the hard facts of life? A process that cancels neither reality as it begs Jesus for hope and help, redemptive meaning and saving grace. If we were to lock the doors and numb ourselves through media intake or go into these remote monologues about how we always knew he was a bad man and how we always make good choices, what legacy does that actually leave to our children? See, here's the thing about self-delusion. The only person deluded is you. Well, I had other things on my list of things to do that day, but none more important than what I was doing. Gathering distraught neighbors, helping the children, mine and others, process this. Praying for my friend, Hank. And that's when I realized it. I didn't even know Amy's last name. Well, neighbors were quick to let the police know that Kent and Rosaria Butterfield were Hank's only friends. <laughs> we provided them with Hank's mom's phone number. One of the officers was a pit bull lover, and she said, pit bulls sprung from meth labs don't last long in the pound. I hate to see this happen to this good dog. This is how I knew the Holy Spirit was at work this day, because Kent is not the animal lover, okay? And all of a sudden, Kent, overwhelmed by the power of something not inside him, said, oh, we'll take the dog. <laughs> oh, we'll take the dog. And let me tell you about this dog. You can't see me, but you, you probably know. I'm five foot two. I am a small woman. If I stand over the dog and the dog stands up, my feet don't touch the floor anymore. Okay, living with Tank is like living with a couch that moves. <laughs> but there's my non-animal loving, animal eating, but not animal loving husband saying, oh yeah, yeah, we'll take the dog, no problem. Kent assured the police that we'd keep him safe until Hank was released. And that's when the police looked at Kent and said, this dog is going to be dead two times over before that day arrives. And all of a sudden, things started to feel very ominous. 
All morning, our house was like a trauma center with the DEA, other members of the police team, hazmat team using our kitchen and bathroom, and with neighbors coming in in a steady stream of criticism, lament, and more criticism. And by one o'clock, the DEA told us that they were leaving to open the meth lab. And that meant that they would open all the windows and doors and all these toxic and noxious fumes would be released into the air that we breathe. And we needed to stay inside our homes, doors closed, windows closed until 6 p.m. Especially given the proximity of our house to Hank's, the warning given was stern. And so I, in my sinfulness, thought, okay, great, this is where this fun party comes to an end. My neighbors go home now, right? Well, some of them did, but not the really angry ones. They still had more to say to us. So grief and sadness and betrayal mingled in our home with the tangled feeling of entrapment. My neighbors were fuming. Bill, pacing my kitchen, finishing up the last drop of coffee, declared, I can't believe you were friends with him. Do you want to know the problem with you Christians? And I thought, well, not really, but I have this sneaky feeling you're going to tell me. <laughs> he said, the problem with you Christians are you're so, you're so open-minded, it's like your brains are falling out your ears. And part of me thought, could I pay you to write that about me on social media? <laughs> I mean, I know you don't actually know what my other job is, but that could really be helpful. Anyway, it takes a certain giftedness to get your neighbor to finish off your coffee and insult you in the last gulp. It's my spiritual gift, you know, on that, on that giftedness quiz, that's where I come in. Sissy, an older woman who stuck with us, just held me and cried. And more than one neighbor asked, did you know about the meth lab? Oh, yeah, sure. More than one neighbor accused, you had to have known about the meth lab. I want you to know, during this time, I called my, my dear friend Christopher Yuan, in part because my son was just coming unglued, because Mr. Hank was our friend, and he was really scared. And what we saw that day was so dehumanizing. And so I just called. Christopher put him on the phone with my son, and even Christopher said to me, you mean you didn't know there was a light? I was like, oh, just shut up. Just shut up now. Just talk to this boy. Okay, okay, so we're naive. The press swarmed our neighborhood with relentless fixation. Ours was the largest drug bust in Durham, and if you know anything about Durham, that's like, that's meeting the mark. And the press did what it does best, stirred up unrest, left neighbors raw, exposed, and frightened. And the jury was in. The jury was in. The neighbors hated Hank. And they weren't sure how they felt about us, knowing that we continued to call Hank our friend. Well, by the day's end, when it was safe to open the windows and doors, and when neighbors finally, do I say it, all trickled home, we gathered our children and we prayed for Hank. And after we tucked the children and the dogs in beds, for the first moment of the day, Kent and I were able to look into each other's eyes and talk. Was Hank quirky, depressed Hank clearly a dangerous man? How in God's green earth did we miss the whole thing about a meth lab across the street? Kent looked at me and said, would you have done this differently? I mean, befriending Hank? I know what he meant. For the past two years, our neighbors had been very suspicious about Hank and had been like, what do you mean he's at your house at Christmas? What do you mean he's at your house for Thanksgiving? They just had a bad feeling about him. Were they right and we wrong? I mean, it certainly appeared that way. But I said, no, Kent, Jesus dined with sinners, and so do we. Right, Kent said. But being known as a friend of sinners has an edge to it that I had not experienced until right now. And that edge is sharp. And that edge was ours now, whether we liked it or not. And you know what that edge was? It's this. 
When Christians throw their lot in with Jesus, we lose the right to protect our reputations. When we love the stranger, we become strange. There's simply no way to love the stranger without losing some skin in the game. So we stayed up late and we wrote two letters, one to Hank, reminding him of our friendship, our love, and the promises of God. And the other was an open invitation to our neighbors, all of our neighbors, to come to our home for a cookout that, that in three days, that would be the Lord's Day, at three o'clock. We posted this invitation on the Nextdoor app and it went out to 300 households. Now, I know, I know, I know, you people think I'm crazy. You know, I, I, talk, I talk to enough of you. I, I, I know that. You, you think this is excessive. You, you think it's lavish. Um, but I want you to know that Kent and I do this regularly. Uh, we do this regularly, and we have come to appreciate the power of extending wide open and fairly regular invitations to strangers, people we have not yet met. Three things happen when you do this. Number one, and I'm gonna start from the ones I like the most, and I'm gonna end with the one that Kent likes the most, okay? Um, so one of the things that I've noticed over the years of doing this is that most of my neighbors are actually afflicted with abuse and addiction. Most of them, not some of them, most of them, at least my neighbors. And what I've noticed is when we have open, regular invitations, we always have it after a crisis. Houses are robbed, come have a party at the Butterfields. Meth lab across the street, party at the Butterfields. We want the party store to have something that says, pray, don't gossip, you know, and we can have that on little cups. But anyway, we always, we are known for doing this in times of crisis, but we also just do this once a week, just regularly. We just have an open house for our neighbors. And what we have noticed is that it sounds lovely, it sounds wonderful to invite people to your home Tuesday at seven o'clock, last Tuesday of the month, um, that sounds great, but quite frankly, many of your neighbors don't know if they're going to be sober or safe that day. But if you just have an open house, one of those days they're gonna be sober, and one of those days they're gonna be safe, and one of those days they're gonna show up. And we have been able to share the gospel with the widest group of outlayers by just being open and regular. So that's the one I really like. The second thing that I really like is that when you do this, 100% of your neighbors feel loved. And you will get little private messages on next door saying, no one's invited me to anything since the divorce, or I'm a shut-in and I need groceries, or can anybody help me with childcare? You know, it's no longer a big mystery how to pray for your neighbors. It's no longer, uh, oh, I should, you know, I should have had a V8, how can I help? It, you, know, you, you actually have a list of things that you can do for people, and that can be very helpful. So those are my two favorite. Kent's favorite is very practical. When you invite everybody on the fly, you invite 100% of people on the fly, 10% of them show up. <laughs> very practical. Um, and that is what happens. So this is what Kent wrote, Dear Neighbors, let's meet for a cookout at the Butterfields on this Lord's Day starting at 3 p.m. We have a lot to talk about. I'll cook burgers and hot dogs and we will serve sweet iced tea. Please bring lawn chairs and friends. Love in Christ, Kent. Well, when we pulled into the, our own driveway at three o'clock, I'm a pastor's wife, Kent's a pastor, it's a long, busy day. When we pulled into our own driveway, we couldn't park there because there, the party had already started. <laughs> Neighbors are already in our house, setting up lawn chairs, extra tables in the carport, let the dogs out in the backyard. The house looked like there was a graduation party about to take place, and we didn't do any of it. And as soon as we parked and got out, other neighbors started to walk from every direction. These people were fuming mad at us three days ago. And this was different, familiar faces, open arms, bouquets of homegrown irises clustered in a little girl's apron, a warm pan of home-baked beans in my older neighbor's hot pad-holdered hands. We embraced each other warmly 
And after coolers of water and sweet iced tea were poured over ice, Kent brought the first tray of burgers and hot dogs hot off the grill to the red checkered tablecloth, and he gathered us to the front yard. Well, the timing was perfect, as voices had already started to rise in disagreement about the meaning of Hank's odd behavior and the discovery of the meth lab. Standing in the middle of the driveway, I watched Kent do that. You, you, they'll never teach you this in seminary. I'm confident of it, but I've seen Kent do it for you know 18 years now. It's, it's, it's homiletically fascinating. It's a combination of a sermonette and a table address. And the kids know it might go on for a while, so just like, shut up. <laughs> Hank was our neighbor, Kent said, and Jesus calls us to love our neighbors, all of our neighbors, both the ones that are easy to love and the ones that are not. Kent described Hank as a mild-mannered recluse who helped us chop down trees. And Kent shared that Hank struggled with depression and had served time in the military. And Kent warned that the destructive power of gossip and failing to forgive each other was more powerful than anything. He reminded us that drug addiction makes slaves of men. And then he said that we are all capable of all kinds of sin. And Kent let it be known that the same power that raised Jesus Christ our Lord from the grave is bestowed to all who repent and believe in him. Hank's story is not over yet, Kent said, and neither is yours. Jesus saves sinners just like us. After we ate, and the kids ran off for water gun fights. You know, that whole crime scene tape is an amazing prop when you are a kid. I'm just gonna say it. Playing cops and robbers was never quite the same. It's not the same anymore. The crime scene tape is down. They, they don't have that prop. Jumping with hose-trenched clothes on the trampoline making rainbows with every leap. Children, uh, Kent, gathered us back to the driveway again to talk. The children were oblivious during their own thing, but some neighbors were becoming what the King James describes best, wroth. They were wroth, and they challenged Kent on this this, it is so funny when people accuse Kent of being this like sloppy liberal. I mean, we sort of love it, really. It's, it's a funny moment. But this, you know, liberal, sympathetic interpretation of Hank. Others worried out loud about property values. And as adults talked, the children flopped on the warm grass, holding push-up pops, stroking that big dog's belly. And Hank just stuck close to the children, I think for both comfort and all of those melting popsicles. <laughs> As the sun set, I brought out mugs of steaming coffee. People lingered over the risky friendships that we were all forging here, of coming together in spite of strife, betrayal, grief, and disagreement about who Hank was and about who we are. Let me make it very clear, we were not agreeing to disagree. We were disagreeing and having dinner together. We stood there, drinking coffee and picking at potato salad until it was too dark to see our forks. Neighbors embraced as they departed, tentatively but genuinely. Wiping runaway tears with the back of a hand, one neighbor told Kent that she had once been a little girl in a Baptist church who long ago believed what Kent said about Jesus saving sinners just like us. She hadn't thought about that in 30 years. She wondered, is Jesus still waiting for her? Another neighbor said that the pastor of his church had talked that morning about the meth lab in Durham, but hadn't put a personal face on it, either the personal face of Jesus or the personal face of Hank. And another woman said at work that week, somebody said that rotting in prison forever would be the just desserts of that awful man. We need to get all these drug addicts out of Durham and the sooner the better. And our neighbor told her colleague that Hank had Christian neighbors. And Christian neighbors were going to stick with Hank no matter how long he was in jail or prison because that's what Christians do. It was a procession of hope, a vision of promise, a drop of expectation that Jesus will make something good out of this. For Hank, 
and for the rest of us. <clears throat> After the all-neighbor barbecue, the cleanup of a meth lab started in real time, right before our eyes. It seemed that as soon as neighbors started to heal, something else happened to open the wound. The front door of our house faces Hank's, and so there is no missing every gory detail. Meth is toxic, and everything in the house, including floorboards and walls, were removed and destroyed. Dumpsters filled the driveway, hauling away personal treasures from a life lost to us. As the children in the neighborhood watched, they grieved. Children are not insensitive in the ways that adults are. They feel the acute pain of losing a drum set and a dog and your favorite sweatshirt and your baby pictures and all the important stuff in your junk drawer. We helplessly watched as dumpsters filled and departed. And with each dumpster, the shame of getting caught was laid bare, that the wages of sin is death, is palpable horror when your neighbor disappears one dumpster at a time. It took seven to erase him. The children kept count. Summer turned into fall and fall into winter, and the house continued to remain enveloped in crime scene tape. And the betrayal and the grief in our neighborhood remained thick. And it was during this time that Kent and I started practicing something that we called radical, ordinary, and almost daily hospitality. Gathering our church family, especially the singles and the students, or anybody that was going through a hard time, alongside of our neighbors for dinner, Bible reading, singing a psalm and a prayer. These were open invitations and people started coming. Sometimes people brought food. More often, people brought friends. Nightly, we gathered. And nightly, we opened the Bible and we prayed. And then one winter day, when we were all snowed out of church, something happened that broke the cycle of anger in our neighborhood for good. You don't understand this because you all are in Pennsylvania, but I just want to tell you that a snowstorm in the South is a beautiful disarming event. Most of your covenant children spend most of their prayer times for um, the, you know, compassion children on the refrigerator and snow hopefully forming in our backyard sometime. A snowstorm in the South is a beautiful thing. This one started at 4 a.m. and my children who are big sleepers knew that because they were hoping it would happen. Snow and ice came down fast and we were all homebound. By mid-morning, all local churches were canceling Sunday services because we don't actually have plows in the South. We just wait for it to melt. Did you know that? It's true. Um, so Kent asked me to write something on the Nextdoor app, inviting the whole neighborhood to have worship at our house. Now, I am waiting for the Nextdoor people to tell me that the Nextdoor app is not my personal evangelistic tool, <laughs> but it hasn't happened yet, okay? So, you know, you use what you can. So this is what I posted. Dear neighbors, because of hazardous road conditions, the church that my husband pastors, the first Reformed Presbyterian Church of Durham, will be closed tomorrow. We are therefore inviting all of you to join us for a worship service at our home at 10.30 a.m. If you can get here safely, we will sing psalms and Kent will deliver a sermon. After worship, you are invited to join us for a meal of soup and bread. Come as you are and bring your neighbors. And if you know anyone in our neighborhood who is in need of help, please let us know. Love in Christ, Rosaria. Well, by Saturday noon, the roads were southern bad. And that means perfect for kids and sledding. Five inches had already fallen and the snow was still coming down. The children were over the moon. <clears throat> After a few hours of sledding down streets in laundry baskets and boogie boards, okay? That's what we use in the South. Nobody has a sled. They all returned to our house and I had a pile of children with snot frozen to their noses, eyelashes frozen to their faces, melting in my homeschool room. A pyramid of white athletic socks showed up dripping, 
Pretty soon, all of my towels and all of the Arnica gel was enlisted to the cause. Kent kept an eye on the roads, kicked the bigger kids out of the homeschool room to go shovel driveways of old ladies, and started revising a sermon that he wanted our neighbors to hear. Kent had been praying about what to preach, about what would bring healing and saving grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king to our neighbors. And I marveled at the opportunity that God had given us in this neighborhood to proclaim Christ because of this crisis, simply because we lived across the street from a crisis, and to continue to have neighbors seek us out to ask us where God is in all of this mess. And even as we disappointed each other in our conflicting responses to Hank's crime and to our own, neighbors continue to come regularly at our dinner table, often nightly, for food and fellowship, Bible reading and psalm singing and prayer. Our family, of course, continued to pray for and write to Hank. Kent was able to visit Hank, <clears throat> although visitations at the county jail are loud and public and generally not conducive to genuine conversation. Hank always wrote back, grateful to hear that Tank was safe and loved and that the kids didn't despise him for what he had done. His helplessness to care for his aged mother <clears throat> or his beloved dog made his anxiety never-ending. Hank's life of incarceration has been filled with constant worry and unyielding fear. The steady fall of snow and the steady stream of children coming in for hot chocolate and then returning to the snow to shovel neighbors' driveways or pummel each other's silly was comforting. I kept an eye on the worsening weather and the great prospect of Lord's Day worship, and I got my phone out and my sermon audio app up, and I started doing what I love to do in the kitchen, listen to Joel Beakey and cook for a crowd. <laughs> I was anticipating a big group tomorrow, and throughout all of these years of marriage and ministry, again, <clears throat> we've done this before. See, Kent has never viewed a weather-related church cancellation as a day off. Never once. A snow day is a day on for Kent in an evangelistic and spiritually rigorous way. On Lord's Day morning, I woke up and I felt nothing but sheer panic. <laughs> Why had we invited all of our neighbors into our home on a day when we really could have had a quiet time of family devotions? And, you know, according to my schedule, I could have used that. What if everyone actually came? This is not exactly outdoor barbecue weather. How could I house and feed all of these people? But then an even scarier thought hit me. What if nobody comes? So I poured my coffee and started my devotions that day like I have for the last 20 years, letting the word of God comfort my agitated heart. And after private devotions, I gathered the pots of soup from the screened-in porch, which just becomes a refrigerator in this kind of weather, and <clears throat> put them on the low burner, and I started the rice and set the tables. <clears throat> the children readied the house for worship, and we have all been through this before, but no matter how often we do it, it's always exciting. After breakfast, we put away the almost-finished Monopoly game from the coffee table, because Kent would be using that as a makeshift pulpit very soon. As soon as Kent prayed for our day and I started the big percolator, our neighbors started to walk through the door of our house. Not the usuals, but some of the unusuals too. Missy, the two Millers, Ryan and his son Ben, the three Muters, the five Shepherds, the Harviews, the five Mackenzies. Some people had actually stayed the night before because <clears throat> they were afraid of the inclement weather. So we had Susanna and Mark and Eddie here too. 28 neighbors in all, not even counting the gaggle of children. Some brought pots of soup and loaves of bread and good coffee beans. I'm serving tea and coffee and hot cocoa 
and the kids are embracing their friends, and my daughter is squealing with delight while my son finds places for the coats and the boots. Bella, our small and elegant Shih Tzu, will soon be burying herself in the coats. We gather our mugs and our smiles, and we press cold cheek to cold cheek. Donna, my neighborhood prayer partner, locks arms with me, and she whispers, this is bigger than my dreams. One set of neighbors looks across the room to see an older lady for whom they have been praying for two decades. They have longed to see her in church and in Christ, but the barriers have almost always seemed insurmountable. But it wasn't hard to get her through the door of our house because she'd been coming for weeks to complain about the meth lab. There was no barrier. This wasn't cleaned up church, no way. And all of a sudden, we knew it, the Lord who numbers and names the stars, who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds and determines the number of stars and gives them all their names. Well, he heals our broken hearts. And here she is. And here our neighbors are who have prayed for her for decades to behold the fruit of a 20-year-old prayer. Well, Kent welcomes everyone and reminds us of the powerful role that Jesus bestows upon neighbors. People sit on the couch, the floor, the piano bench, the chairs brought in from the dining room, the exercise ball, everywhere else. The children distribute every Bible and Psalter in the house. We do not have enough to go around. And so people sit close enough to each other, close enough to share. The yellow crime scene tape is still glaring from the front window and Kent goes right there. He tells us that he'll be preaching on forgiveness, on Christ's forgiveness of those who repent and believe and of our responsive forgiveness for one another. Kent says Jesus calls us to forgive because without forgiveness we cannot be agents of grace or be in the path of God's grace. Kent has never been a man for small talk. He assembles our worship service with prayer and then he asks us to open our Psalters to Psalm 23. Kent explains that in worship we sing a cappella without instruments. You know, some neighbors have been through this so they know what to expect, but others have not. And for the first time in their lives, something more frightening than a meth lab is now registering for them. (laughs) Yes, you know what it is. It's not plummeting housing prices either. It's that this crazy Kent Butterfield is going to ask us all to sing a cappella. The panic is finally rooted in something we're going to get over with very quickly. The melody for the psalm is crimined. I know some of you know it. It's that beautiful Welsh rendition. All of the older people in my neighborhood knew it even before they knew they knew it. We sing slowly, we're in a circle, and we're staring at each other. And it goes like this. The Lord's my shepherd, I am not want, he makes me down to lie in pastures green, he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. The waters outside are eerily frozen, and the tire swing in the front yard shimmers, encased in ice. We continue to sing. My soul he doth restore again, and me to walk doth Savor every word, 
each promise, each soul here. Yea, though I walk in death's dark veil, yet will I fear no Even though I am presenting or leading this psalm, my mind is wandering. It's wandering to the documentary of Temple Grandin, the professor of animal science and autism rights leader. I mean, I'm sorry about that. Now you know what happens to pastor's wives who homeschool kids with, you know, ADD, right? You know, I, there I am. You know, she studies cows and she developed a system to move cows through a chute in order to make a slaughterhouse more humane. So paradoxical, so distasteful, and so symbolic of what secularism does to a culture. It makes the slaughterhouse seem inevitable and innocuous. But cows are different from sheep. Cows must be prodded from behind. Sheep must be gently led from the, com from the front and comforted from the side. That's the only way we can walk through life and death. Jesus, our shepherd, leads gently. A table thou hast furnished me in presence of my foes, my word rings realistic. God protects us in the midst of danger, not necessarily from danger. He says in Luke 10:3, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I ponder this. We are singing very slowly right now, holding each other in our voices and our eyes. Many are singing for the first time in the the words of Christ are sinking down, down, down. We're holding each other gently, and then we conclude. Goodness and mercy all my life shall surely This is intimate business. When we sing a psalm together, we speak the truth of God's word one to another, truth unhinged from our problems and our peeves, maybe for the first time in our lives. You know, people can be neighbors for decades and actually never be this close. Well, now Kent starts the worship service. Kent prays for our worship service and asks God to be present with us, to work healing where healing is needed, and repentance where repentance is needed, and salvation where salvation is needed. Kent does not mince words. Kent is not one man in the pulpit, even if that pulpit is a makeshift table where a Monopoly board, the Jurassic World edition, had just graced that place or not. And as I watch him open the Bible, I am so deeply grateful that God allowed me to marry this man. Kent's sermon is on Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
The Beatitudes are so rich. Delivered to the disciples, they require faith to execute. Kent starts to preach. Kent tells our neighbors, you can show mercy only if you know God's peace. And if you are still mad at Hank, then you have spiritual work to do. Do you have God's peace? And Kent concludes with this question, have you made peace with Jesus? What about your soul? Do you know him? Have you repented from your sin and placed your hope in Christ alone? Today is the day of salvation. And then Kant prays. He prays for salvation where it's needed. He prays that God would help our unbelief. And nothing about this worship service is business as usual. It is all raw and wide open and transparent and risky. And after the benediction, Kent invites everyone to step into the dining room and kitchen and foyer and homeschool room and all the places where there are table settings. And the kids start to bring the piano bench and the dining room chairs and the exercise ball back into these places so that people can sit and eat. Sing-song aromas and snugs talk promise good tidings. Well, that morning I had set places for 25 people gathering around every flat surface, first surface I could find. I underestimated, but that's okay. Some of us are happy to sit on the floor. We make an assembly line, passing pots of soup through a narrow hallway. We ooh and ah over the warm bread that Maisie pulls out of the oven, the amazing white chicken chili that Tina always brings, the children pile their plates high and their bowls deep, and then they head out to the freezing cold screened-in porch, even the frozen trampoline to eat without grown-ups. We talk about kids and snow and work, cancer and bad knees and politics. And then the talk moves to Hank. Kent, tell us how Hank is doing. We know you visit him in jail, David offers as the warm bread makes another round through the tables. Kent takes a breath. Hank is fragile, of course. Jail breaks a man. But Hank has recently committed his life to Jesus. Well, this is truth unmasked. Hank's recent faith in Christ is not cheap news. This is the kind of news that moves mountains. Quiet descends. A holy hush hovers over the table. Kent explains that Hank has been desperate for help, but there is no real earthly help for him. This is his second offense. He's looking at life. There is no pretending otherwise. Hank needs Jesus, the rescuer, because no one else can go where Hank has been taken. He has detoxed from meth, and he is feeling completely, utterly alone. Hank does not need a pep talk. He needs Jesus, the Savior, to shepherd him through these long, dark days ahead. Hank was never raised in the church, and so all of this is very new. But, Kent tells us, Hank is reading his Bible, and he's praying for the grace to get through each day. And he's praying for all of you. And he's thankful for those of you who are praying for him. Kent is speaking softly now, and the room, once bursting with talk and laughter, is simply captive in silence. And then Kent just says it. Neighbors, Kent, Hank is no longer the meth addict across the street. He's my brother in Christ. It's hard to explain what happens to a community when the man easiest to despise commits his life to Jesus and becomes a brother in Christ. It's hard to explain, but I suspect you can imagine. It changes everything. And that's because the gospel changes everything not just the fate and future of an individual, but the gospel changes everything. God puts the lonely in families. 
And how does he do this? Well, he works through you. He works through your house, your life, your weakness, your dining room table, your cat hair on the couch, your clothes on the table that need to be folded and put away or stuffed back in the dryer before people come up, whatever it is. That's what he uses. We see this principle powerfully laid out for us in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Mark chapter 10. We're gonna, we're gonna read um, starting with verse 28. Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. If it's your Bible and not a pew Bible and you have a pen, underline that. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The gospel meets us as strangers and enemies of God, every single one of us. And the gospel delivers belonging in the family of God. The gospel actually promises a hundredfold of these vital and intimate relationships to all who repent and believe and put their trust in Jesus. But that verse, that hundredfold in this time is very practical. All right, this is not Ephesians. I love Ephesians, every spiritual gift. I want that too, but this is very practical. It addresses things like, where will I live? With whom will I eat dinner and pray? How will I face the burden of my sin and my weakness? How will I get through the loneliness of my days? How will I get through this grief? 100-fold, that line addresses it, answers those questions. That hundredfold promise in this verse, people of God, I want to tell you something about it. It is not going to fall from the sky. It's just not. It's going to come from the family of God, living like the family of God, with arms and invitations wide open, or it's not going to come at all. Gospel life is covenantal. Gospel life is communal. When the gospel comes with a house key, we put a nail in the coffin of our culture's obsession with individualism, which is the bedrock of secularism. So if you believe that these are dangerous, desperate, and barbaric times, then you are absolutely right. If you believe your neighbors are dangerous, yep, they probably are, I got it, no problem. The princes of this world are demolishing what it means to be male, to be female, to be human, to be an image bearer with a soul that will last forever and a gendered body that will either live in glory in the new Jerusalem or suffer for eternity in hell. And the highest achievement of atheistic modernity is this, the autonomous, freely choosing person finding meaning in nothing but himself. Major sectors of the church have gone apostate, and many more are teetering on the brink. And the threads of Christian tradition once sewn neatly into the fabric of culture, it is good for everyone, and as it tends toward a kind of creation-mandated life. But as we see the steady erasure and the breaking of these threads, we will find, maybe sooner than you think, that Christians will be inhabiting a similar situation of that of the church in early Rome. And in these desperate times, Jesus is still leading you and me from the front of the line. Hospitality is the front line of evangelism in this post-Christian world. Your home is not your castle. You know how I know it? Ambassadors don't live in castles. Ambassadors live in embassies. They're open, busy, vibrant places. Your white carpet is not your God. Your time is not your own. 
But your home and my home is an incubator and a hospital for strangers to become neighbors and neighbors by God's grace to become part of the family of God. Hospitality is the new face of spiritual warfare. How we live reveals a lot. In fact, our entire theological system is on display. The gospel comes with a house key, and if it doesn't, maybe, just maybe, you're not actually proclaiming the gospel. This has been a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance is a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen who hold to the historic creeds and confessions and who proclaim biblical doctrine in today's church. The Alliance hosts conferences, produces radio and internet broadcasts, and publishes online and in print. We continue only with your support. To give a financial gift or learn more, call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit AllianceNet.org.